Good morning, everyone. I've only been in one fist fight in my entire life. And I think uh, a better way to word it is I got beat up once. A guy named Brandon lived in my neighborhood, was kind of the neighborhood bully. He had a couple years on me. He had a six-inch reach on me, 20 pounds. And it was basically the 1990s version of Mayweather McGregor. Um, I was McGregor in the, in the situation. And uh, I had another friend, Kevin, who came up to me and was like, hey, Tommy, I want you to tell Brandon this Yo Mama joke. And if you guys remember that back in the day, the Yo Mama jokes that basically, I mean, I've heard some good ones, but, but, but Kevin said to me, I want you to tell them, tell them this Yo Mama joke. I tell them, your mom's so poor, I saw her kicking a can down the street, and I asked her what she's doing, and she said, movie. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't get it. I, I didn't understand the joke. I basically, basically, mom's poor, all she owns is a can or something. Um, so I tell the joke, and Brandon gets enraged and beats me up. Because here's what I didn't know at the time, is that Brandon's mom had just moved out. Uh, it actually just happened. And she probably brought more than I can, but, but my friend Kevin set me up. He knew that Brandon's mom moved out. He's like, hey, go tell him this your mama joke. It's going to be awesome. It wasn't awesome. Uh, and so I got beat up. I deserved getting beat up for that. And Brandon was kind of a neighborhood bully. And I learned from that fight how to use my wit and wisdom and, and, and charm and good looks to get out of trouble uh, moving forward in my life. Also, Brandon terrorized the whole neighborhood really for a stretch there. And I learned how to protect my friends and kind of keep us out of his, his wrath. And as I got more bits and pieces of Brandon's story, uh, it really wasn't until a few years ago that part I started putting the pieces together like, oh, there's a lot to this guy, a lot of pain in this guy's life that I didn't, as a 10-year-old, all I knew was I don't want to get a bloody nose. But Brandon's mom had moved out of the household because the father was abusive, uh, verbally, maybe physically. The, the, the father was also uh, a drug dealer. And so the mom just bailed, but bailed on her sons as well. And so they were left with a dad that wasn't there. And when he was there, he was angry or violent. And that's what they knew. A few years later, when we were all in middle school, their mom died uh, early. And when we were in our late teens, the father died. And, and Brandon didn't really have much of a prayer at home. And so at school and in the neighborhood, he lashed out for attention. And, and the only way he knew how, violence. He was a bully. As a 10-year-old, I didn't get it. I didn't get that he was broken and, and, and had no place for hope. In fact, the, the way that we treated him and trying to keep our distance actually further isolated him and probably made him feel more alone. And Brandon ended up following in the footsteps of his dad. Uh, in his 20s, was in and out of jail, and I read a few years ago that he died in prison in his late 20s. Had, had a couple kids himself. So he kind of repeated the cycle of, of poverty and, and violence and, and, and crime. And I'm curious because I look at the trajectories of all the people that grew up in that neighborhood, and I'm grateful and, and humbled often um, with, with how God's blessed my life. But I look at Brandon's life, and I wonder, man, what would have happened if someone had treated Brandon with compassion? What would have happened if someone had, had come along beside Brandon and, and mentored and encouraged and said, hey, you are a person of dignity and value and, and beauty and worth. You are worth loving what would have happened if someone came around him and, and gave him that, that gift? I wonder if his life would have turned out differently, if his trajectory would have turned out differently, if he could have broken that cycle. I grew up in a faith tradition, and maybe you guys grew up in a similar tradition, that, that really emphasized um, the sinfulness of mankind. In fact, the first 
point of the story of the good news of Jesus in that context is you are a sinner. <laughs> That's the first part of the good news. You're sinners. And I'm not even opposed to that reality. I get we're all broken. We all are wounded and we cause wounds. We're, we are sinners. I'm not, I wouldn't argue against that, but that's the foundational statement of that faith story. And as I study the scriptures, I get a little repulsed because I actually think it's, that's not the foundation. Genesis 3, chapter 3, is where the fall happens. And I'm no math wizard, but there's a couple chapters that happen before Genesis 3. So Genesis 3 starts off, uh, it tells us about the fall of, of Adam and Eve and the introduction of sin into our world. But we're lucky enough that Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3, that the story doesn't start at Genesis 3, it starts at Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1 it says that God created all of us, mankind, in his image. And God saw that it was good. And while I'm not debating the fact that we are broken and sinful people, I think the core identity of us as image bearers. We're not sweeping the dirt under the rug. In fact, we've, we've, we've poured dirt on top of the rug. We've, we've missed the beauty of the fact that we are called to be image bearers. That is our foundational identity. In this past month, we've gone through Genesis chapter one, and we've looked at the goodness of creation. God creates everything, and after each section, he says, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And so in the first week, we, we, we said basically the goodness of creation reflects the goodness of a creator. God is good. And the next week, Laura taught, and she taught on the goodness of creation. God creates these things, and, and they are good. Last week, I taught on the goodness of time. Even in our mortality, even though we have limited time, time is good. And this morning, I want us to, to look at the idea and the foundational truth of our identity as humans is that we are good. We are his image bearers. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So in the beginning, the first chapter, the foundational statement about us is that God created us in his image and God saw that it was good. When it says that God made us in his image or made us in his likeness, what he's saying is, you guys are the best expression of who I am. Now, I struggle with that because I think dolphins, you know, I think octopus, <laughs> I think there's, there's some stuff out there in creation that's pretty rad, but when God creates us, he says, you are the best expression of who I am. I've made you in my image. As we look at Genesis chapter one, and God creates all these things, he creates these things for his glory. Now the word glory can be a churchy word, but the word glory just means uh, it reflects the value or the nature or the character of something. So when God creates the universe, he creates it to reflect his value, his nature, and his character. And when God gets to us, to mankind, he says, you are the, the, the chief expression of who I am. You are the ultimate reflection of who I am. He tells us to be fruitful and multiply. That's the first command that he gives us, and it's the only one that we're pretty good at. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. He says, fill the earth with image bearers. Because you guys are the best expression 
of who I am. I want you to fill the earth because I want the earth to be filled with people, with creatures that reflect my goodness, that reflect my worth, that reflect my value. And when God created us in his image, he created us to be in relationship. As Christians, we believe in the Trinity, which is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. God is relational even within himself. But God is relational with creation with us. So when God creates us in his image, he also creates us relationally. For four relationships, he creates us to be in relationship with him. We see that in Genesis 2 and 3 when God walks in the garden. We see that in all the Bible as God relates to us. He creates us to be in relationship with each other. We see that in Genesis chapter 2. It's not good for man to be alone, so, so God creates another. And we're, so we're called to be in relationship with each other. We're also called to be in relationship with the rest of creation. We see that in Genesis 1. We're going to unpack that a little bit more in a little bit. But God called us to be in relationship with creation, to be its stewards, to be its caregivers. And then lastly, he created us to be in relationship with ourselves, to have self-awareness and identity and self-esteem, self-worth. So God created us to be in relationships. He created us in his image. And I'm not going to argue the fact that, that we blew it, that we've blown it, that we keep blowing it. We are sinners as well. But at the core of us, we are image bearers. Now, John Philip Newell is an author and theologian. He says it like this. The first thing that is said about humanity in the Hebrew Scriptures is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Everything else written about us in our scriptural inheritance needs to be read in light of this foundational truth, that within us is the likeness of the one from whom we have come. Or as Julian of Norwich puts it, we are made of God. We are made of the light that was in the beginning. We are made of the wisdom that fashioned the universe in its glory of interrelatedness. We are made of the love that longs for oneness. This is not to deny our capacity for falseness or for the ugly betrayals that tear us apart. It is simply to say that deeper still is our of Godness. What would it look like for these true depths to fully come forth again? So in the beginning, when God created us, he said that he made us in his image, in his likeness. So the question for this morning is, what does that look like and how do we live out that reality in our lives? I have a few thoughts. The first thing I want to say is, don't get cocky. When you hear that you're an image bearer and that God made you in his likeness, it's not a place for arrogance. It's a, it's a place for humility. In Genesis 2, when it gets a little more elemental, God says it like this, I took dirt out of the ground and I breathed life into you. So you're a combination. You are dirt. And you are the breath of God. So don't get cocky. Because our value, our worth, our image, our likeness comes from the breath. The rest of us is dirt. So don't get cocky. Being an image bearer should lead us to humility. We live in the age of narcissism that says, look at me. I'm awesome. Let me be me. Haters are going to hate. I don't care. I'm going to do my thing. Um, let me fulfill my destiny, my calling. And we have these grandiose plans that are all about me, me, me. And in the process, we burn relationships. And so you might hear an image bearer and think, that's right. I am awesome. And what I want to say off the, the, the front end of this is, don't get cocky. You are an image bearer. You are of value. You are of worth. You are of dignity. But don't get cocky. It's not about self-importance. A few months ago, I, I stumbled upon Carl Sagan's Reflections on the Pale Blue Dot. And the Pale Blue Dot, um, it, it comes from a picture. In 1990, the Voyager, uh, Voyager 1 was, was, was a space thing, <laughs> space shuttle that was getting out of a, flying out of our solar system. And Carl Sagan, the scientist, requested, hey, on your way out of the solar system, take one last picture of Earth 
from that distance. It was a few billion miles away. And this picture happened. There's the picture that we have. So there's a picture of Earth. If you can't see it, here's an arrow. Boom. There you go. The pale blue dot. A few years later, Carl Sagan wrote a lecture on this that's pretty famous, and I just think it's very humbling. When you look at the size of that in relation to just one fraction of the cosmos, still in our solar system, and we know there's so many more now. Here's what Carl Sagan says. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives here. The aggregate of all of our joys and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors, so that in glory and in triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. I'm going to reread that sentence. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors, so that in glory and in triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of the dot on scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner on the dot. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. To my mind, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly and compassionately with one another and to preserve and cherish that pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. It underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly and compassionately with one another and to preserve and cherish that pale blue So who do you think you are? How great do you think your plans are? When I, when I hear this quote, the rivers of blood, it sounds pretty epic, and it is. It's how, how, how many people have they left dead in their wake for momentary control of a fraction of a sliver of a dot? When I think of that idea, I think of even my own family, my grandfather, who left a trail of wounds in his path for his career. And he achieved wealth, he achieved success in his career, but in the end, he died. And he left behind a lot of wounds. And that was it. And the question is, was it worth it? And who do you think you are? And so many of us in our ambitions say, the haters going to hate it. I'm going to burn bridges. I'm going to burn relationships. Because the ends justifies the means. What I'm trying to accomplish is worth all the pain and wounds I'm causing in the wake of my greatness. And when we look at the scale of the earth in relation to our solar system, when we look at the scale of the earth in relation to the cosmos, when we look at our lives and compare it in, in light of the 7.5 billion people who live on the world right now or the 105, 110 billion people that lived in the history of the world in the span of all history, and the question becomes, who do you think you are? 
that you're so important, that your agenda, that your goal, that your destiny is worth the trail of bodies that you leave in your wake. So don't get cocky. Be humble. Be kind. The way you treat the people around you is who you are. Your goals in the end aren't going to be that great. Cheers. David says like this in Psalm 8. Now, David didn't have telescopes. He didn't have modern science. He didn't have a scale of, of the whole universe thing. But even him as a shepherd, even him as a king, as he looked at the scale of everything, this is what he says about this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babes and infants. You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So, so David echoes the, 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 the words of Carl Sagan and says, when I consider everything, when I consider the cosmos, even in the limitation of the way I can see them, and how big and vast they are and how big and vast you are, God, who am I? Who am I that you are mindful of me? But God, you are. You are mindful of me. I am valuable. I do have worth. I do have dignity. So we are made in the image of God. We do have value and worth. And I'm not questioning that, but my, my challenge to you is don't be arrogant. Don't get cocky. Let this be a place of humility. The second thing I say is that we are blessed to be a blessing. In Genesis 1.28, as he creates man, it says, God blessed them. Now, this word blessed in the South, it, it, it means one thing when I say something like, bless your heart. Whole other thing, right? I say, God bless you because you sneeze. Whole other thing. But this word blessed in the, in the Hebrew is the same word for the word kneel. Uh, to kneel down. And to kneel down and give a gift. It's an implication that if you're going to bless someone, you're going to get down in, in, in honor and reverence and respect, you kneel down and you give them a blessing. It's a posture of humility, which makes sense because whenever God gives us anything, he, he has to lower himself. He has to humble himself, and it says that God blessed them. Now, how did God bless them in Genesis 1? The next thing he says is, be fruitful and multiply. And a few verses later, and I'm giving you all this fruit for food. So God blesses us in the beginning. Foundational statement, this is how God shows his blessings to us. Sex and food. This is a story I can get behind. God is awesome, right? So God blesses them, says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I made you my image. Be a steward, take care of creation. You have authority over creation. And here's some, some fruit for food. Sounds great to me. God blesses. He kneels down in humility and gives us this gift. And when God blesses us in this way, he's doing so so that we can be a blessing. A few chapters later in Genesis, when God's talking to Abraham, he tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that all nations will be blessed through you. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. So when God creates us in, in his image and gives us his value, and his dignity, and his worth, and his authority. He says, I'm giving you this so that you can be a blessing to others, so you can bless the people around you and serve the people around you, and so you can take care of creation. It's a posture and a place of humility, a place of service. And so the next point I would say is, because of that, we treat everyone as if they are in the image of God, because they are. We treat everyone like they are made in the image of God. 
Genesis says this in Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we see at the very beginning of everything, and this is why I love Genesis chapter 1. It sets the foundation for the rest of the story. At the very beginning of the Bible, God says man and woman, male and female, are both equally made in the image of God. You guys are equals in value and worth. Now the rest of history often tells a different side of that story. It's a different story. But the foundational statement of Scripture is men and women are equals. Everyone, every, if you're human, you're made in the image of God. Paul takes this up in Galatians chapter 3 as he talks about the work of Jesus, how Jesus is trying to bring us back to that place of viewing everyone as image bearers. And he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we're colorblind, that we don't recognize differences, or that we don't understand the, the differences in, in genders, but that we honor and respect and esteem our differences, and we realize that all of us, no matter our background, are made in the image of God. Everyone is made in the image of God, men and women. Regardless of your, uh, your religion, regardless of your sexual orientation, regardless of your gender, regardless of your education background, regardless of your social status, everyone is equal, and everyone is made in the image of God of God. We are all image bearers, and as followers of Jesus, we have to treat everyone like that. And that sounds good, but the, the, the trick of that, too, is so are our enemies. Our enemies are also image bearers. Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Everyone is an image bearer, so I want you to think about, before we move on, who's the one person right now that I really struggle seeing as being made in the image of God? Now, it might be a certain politician. It might be a certain family member. It might be a certain ex-girlfriend or boyfriend. There's people in our lives that where this is really challenging and really hard. But James says it like this, and James is one of those books, and you read it in the New Testament, it just punches you in the face over and over and over again because it's so blunt, it's so straightforward, and it's so good. And James says like this, how can you praise God, the creator of all things, with one breath, and then the next breath, curse man, who God made in his image. James connects the two. You can't praise God and curse man because man is made in God's image. So who's the person in your life that, that, that for you, it's the most challenging to see them in the image of God? And what would it look like to view them like that? And what would it look like to treat them like that? Treat everyone as if they're made in the image of God because they are. The next piece I would say is just take care of creation. This is clear and implicit in Genesis chapter 1. So what does it mean to be an image bearer? It means that we take care of creation. We have the authority and the responsibility to take care of creation. And here's what he says in Genesis 1. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. It's pretty obvious that tied into and knitted into us being made in God's image is this idea of creation care. God has given us authority over creation and responsibility over creation in the same way that he has authority and responsibility. And it's my estimation that in the past 200 years, we have not done a great job of creation care. Might be an understatement. Since the Industrial Revolution, we've been kind of making a mess of it. Now, we might have been making a mess of it for the past thousands of years. I don't know. But one thing that seems pretty clear is in the past 200 years, we've, we've made a mess of this. And for some of us, we may look at Scripture and say, well, God... God's given me authority to do whatever I want with creation so I, can, I, can, I have control, I have power, I have authority. Um, much like a CEO might have control or power or authority over a company. 
And that's true, but if a CEO burned the company into the ground, they had the right to do that, but we wouldn't regard them as a good CEO. And if that CEO burnt their company in the ground, that was the only place that they could live in. And they'd be like, and there's more at stake than that, then we'd really regard them in low esteem. So while we have authority and we have a power, we also have a responsibility to take care of creation. Now the nuances and the implications and the complexity of that is way more than I can cover in any one sub-point of a sermon. It deserves its own sermon or its own sermon series. And I get that. So one thing I want to do in the next few days is kind of compile a list of resources, books, sermons, um, and ideas of how we can be more involved in creation care. If you're interested in that, feel free to shoot us an email and we'll send that to you. And if you're not interested in that, that's okay too. <laughs> so the last thing I would say about what does it mean for us to be in, as image bearers, people made in the image of God, uh, the last point I would just say is look to Jesus. And this is probably the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus is the answer. Um, but the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is the ultimate image bearer. He's the ultimate expression of God. And I would even argue that Jesus uh, is what we were supposed to look, look like in the beginning. That was how we were supposed to live our lives, is how Jesus lived it. So Hebrews 1 says it like this. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15 says it like this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then John starts off his gospel and says it this way. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Jesus showed us the original plan, the original blueprint. He is the exact representation of God. And as we as followers of Jesus seek to live out a life that bears the image of God well. We look to Jesus and say, how did Jesus live? So I encourage you guys to look to Jesus, to study his life, and to imitate that in your own. He is the ultimate image bearer, and through his death and resurrection, he's bringing us back to that image, that foundational image of who we are. So study the life of Jesus. I want to wrap up with a quote from Abraham Heschel, who's a rabbi from the 20th century. He's one of my favorite um, authors, and I love this quote that he has um, the idea of the image of God. He says, Man is a duality of mysterious grandeur and pompous aridity, a vision of God in a mountain of dust. It is because of his being dust that his iniquities may be forgiven, and it is because of his being an image that his righteousness is expected. It is because of his being an image that his righteousness is expected. When we transition our foundational identity from being sinners to being image bearers, things begin to shift. If I'm a sinner, then I, begin, I kind of have this idea of like, I'm a sinner, what do you want me to do? I'm only human. I'm gonna blow it, I'm gonna justify it because that's just who I am. I'm only human. Um, and the bar gets set pretty low and we, we, we tend to, to barely meet it. When we shift that from the expectation of being image bearers and say, I am human. God created me in his image. There is an expectation, there is a responsibility Righteousness is possible. Righteousness is expected. I can be better. I can be more humble. I can, I can serve others and take care of creation better. I am an image bearer. There's a, there's a weight of responsibility, but there's also a hope that we can be more. Because of the image, expectation is there. And for some of us, when we look at who's the person that we have the hardest time seeing as an image bearer, the answer to that question is myself. I have a hard time seeing that. And I don't encourage you today if that's you because God created us in his image and with that comes the expectation and the possibility and the hope 
that we can be like Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the the encouragement and the foundation of, of Genesis 1. How we see at the beginning, God, you made us like you. You made us good. That that's in us, that's in our souls, that's in our DNA, and that we can catch glimpses of that possibility in our lives. And I pray that we would be pulled by hope into a, into a better life. It would be pulled by Jesus into a better life. Teach us to, to treat everyone around us with dignity and honor and respect. Teach us to be stewards of creation, to honor and respect it. We thank you for Jesus, our ultimate example and sacrifice. Amen.